0: Everyone, welcome to Wake Island. Today on the show, we have on Jamie Nairs and this is not going to be a writing-based episode. However, I hope that those of you who are only here to hear writers talk that you stick with this one and listen and find some common ground with how Jamie and I discuss painting and art. I'd like to be talking to artists in different mediums down the line, so this is one of my first attempts at it. In the past, I'd spoken to a few documentarians, but I'd like to get back into that. And Jamie Nares is a legend in the art world. She was a she was a no wave musician, a filmmaker who directed *Rome '78* and this art film called *Pendulum*. And most notably, she's a painter. You might also know her as James Nares, who appeared in the *Blank City* documentary. And yes, we get into her transitional alignment in this conversation. If I had to describe Jamie's painting style, I would say it's fluid, elegant, and graceful. Her latest series are these large format paintings that are composed of a single gestural brushstroke that moves across the canvas. In this conversation, we get into how Jamie explores motion, time, and the streets of New York City and combines them into an aesthetic that uses the street both as a cultural nexus and as a physical material. And before we get to the conversation, I just want to put out this, I guess, disclaimer that I recorded this interview back in December of 2020. And at the time I was just really, really bummed out and depressed. And I think it poisoned how I thought of this conversation. I was in that weird mental dead zone right after Christmas and before New Year's Eve the day before I went to meet Jamie at her studio, there was this blizzard. So I was just walking through this empty warehouse district and knee deep snow. And I was just so like bummed out about not having work or prospects and money and blah, 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 all the kind of shit that so many of us were dealing with during the pandemic. I know it's not unique to me. I'm just kind of Making excuses for why I sat on this audio for literally almost six months. So I was afraid that when I played this interview back, that vibe would just be evident in my voice. So I just kept putting it off and not listening to it and not dealing with it. And I think now that I've finally moved past that point in my life and returned to the interview, it's actually really good. And I'm proud of the dialogue that I had with Jamie. And I'm so happy that she even agreed to speak with me. So to kick this one off, I actually spoke to Jamie over the phone a few days ago to apologize over holding on to the audio for so long and not being in contact. I legitimately felt ashamed. So if you wanna hear me grovel, apologize, and squirm, I think you're gonna like this bit, but I truly do hope that you stick around for the interview with Jamie Neres because she's a true artistic legend. And if the spirit moves you, please consider donating to Wake Island. The links are in the show notes. So let's get into it. Here's my apology to Jamie Nairs, followed by the interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. I was
1: just going to say that when we last got together, it was on one of the coldest days of the year. And. And and today is one of the hottest.
0: You beat me to the punch. I was going to say the exact same thing. Um, You know, this is is actually like just super funny in general because, for one, this is my first, um, uh, you know, uh, public apology on my uh, podcast. But it's also just so funny to think that um, we had spoken in the end of December. I believe it was like right after christmas it was right after a blizzard and i just remember walking to your studio through knee like i'm not even exaggerating knee-high snow and just being so fucking (laughs) depressed about not having a job not having money the excitement of like or whatever you know (laughs) short-lived excitement of the holidays that just passed and um
2: yeah it it was just like
0: i've never been that kind of out of sorts. And the funny part is is that we had this like great conversation I think and I just felt so terrible about myself that I let it really poison my view of it and I just I I honestly I couldn't even like listen to it for the longest time because I just felt that I would hear it and I would just hear the sadness in my voice, yeah. and it would just oh, it would powerful. make me feel even worse. Um, so you know, my my apologies about you know sitting on this interview for so long.
1: I'll tell you, Paul. I think we're both pretty good actors then, because because I was not in the best of, of spirits, and and I was doing my best as well. And I didn't catch on that you weren't feeling so good at all. Um, but it was a miserable day, and my studio was freezing. The, the the heat wasn't working properly, or maybe it was just too cold to heat, or I don't know. But it was, or the heaters we had to turn off. I remember.
0: Because yeah. it was so loud. <laughs> but it's funny to think that this wasn't even half a year ago and it seems like yeah. since then we've like probably all passed through this like fuzzy membrane of short-lived sickness and yeah. this like uncertain sense of relief into this like current state of limbo which is okay. i think both very like exciting but yeah. also just very uncertain of like okay now we're here. I'm not sure what here is right now.
1: Yeah, it was a really strange time. And and that was kind of, in many ways, the darkest days of it. It was the like the shortest day of the year. And, you know, it was that kind of time. And, um, and there didn't really seem to be much of a way out of it at that point. Uh, we, nobody knew what was going to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I think was like, for me, like the... The worst part was just that I, at the time it kind of felt like, well, this is my life. Walking around empty warehouse districts in the snow, unemployed.
1: You, you sound in better spirits today.
0: Yeah, and, and so do you.
1: <laughs> I was very distracted about things going on in my life and and felt like I couldn't string two words together to complete a sentence. I did. I feared that maybe it was as bad as I thought because I hadn't heard from you, and <laughs> I thought, "Oh my God, what did I say, what did I say." But it's lovely to to hear positive things.
0: Yeah, and I apologize for that. I feel terrible about that. It, it's like I said. I mean, I was just in such a deep hole that I felt that I hadn't done you uh, justice, and that I was just like, if I hear it, I'll, uh, it'll it'll confirm. How, how terrible it was and, and it'll <laughs> just make it worse and I just kept putting it off so it's uh, it's great to yeah. hear that from you as well And
1: I recall that you were asking really good questions really nice sort of thoughtful questions with a lot of open space made available to me to come back with an answer and I enjoyed it thoroughly in my sort of semi depressed state I was... Uh, I don't know what it was, but I guess they were bad days for all of us.
0: Mm, indeed. Well, let's uh, let's let's check this interview out. Let's see how it played out in reality. Good luck with it, Paul. It's really nice to hear you. And Likewise. Um, again, soon, I hope. For sure. Take care. Have a Take good night. Care. Bye, now. Bye. But you know, when we spoke on the phone. You had mentioned that you had gone to the Nova Convention. Yeah. Did you can you tell me about it? Not much. <laughs> I guess just for the listeners, the Nova Convention was this <laughs> two-day symposium that happened in New York in the late 70s early 80s? Yeah, like 1980 or something. I can't remember. Yeah, and it was for William Burroughs and it was It's funny cuz uh you know, I've talked about this with James Grawerholtz and I interviewed Aaron Bruckner, who was Howard Bruckner's nephew, who directed a documentary about William Burroughs that just got put, was recently released in the Criterion Collection. And the film of the Nova Convention has been locked in storage in John Giorno's archive. And John Giorno recently died, so I, I'm assuming that they'll be doing something with this. But I still don't really have an idea of what this event was like. What it, What was the vibe, like, you know what? Um, I'm not
2: going to be that much help because, like most days at that time, I was not very present, like a lot of people. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I was the only one who was there but not present. Mm-hmm. What made it not present for you? Drugs. <laughs> what was your drug in of a word? <laughs> what was your drug of choice at that time? Heroin. Mm. But when I say drug of choice, I mean I was. I would take anything that was available. Yeah, yeah. I, I was one of those. Garbage head, I think they're technically referred to <laughs> as. But I was not very present, and I my memories are scant. More than anything, I just remember this kind of dais, is that what you call it, dais? This elevated stage that James talked about, I think, mm. his um, theatrics. And Patti Smith and Debbie Harry and all those guys sitting in a row. I think it was like three days or something yeah, of, of yeah. stuff and Sylvain. Sylvain, always omnipresent.
0: Were you there for the, all three days, or did you just kind of pop in and out? Like I just I don't have like a, don't an idea remember. of what this event was oh, even like.
2: I'm not much help. <laughs> I just remember you know it was it was uh, looking back that whole scene was quite small. Yeah, You know, there weren't that many people. Mm. And everyone kind of knew everybody. Um, it was nice to hear James and you talking about... There are certain names that I'd forgotten about altogether. Howard Bruckner, who... I don't know, lots of people who um, I've completely lost touch with. But in those days, everybody knew each other. And it was just like another night out um, at the mud club or somewhere. Except this one had obviously more interesting things going on Mm -hmm. but there were things like that happening all over the place every night it was really a very very fertile cross-pollinated kind of time
0: it's a time that I think about a lot and obviously I wasn't present for it but when while I was preparing to speak with you and kind of immersing myself in Your work and whatever media I could find. Mm. Uh, I watched the Blank Generation documentary again a few days ago. That's Amos's
2: film, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah. The documentary about the no-wave era. And it really made me think about the idea of ritual and how important it is to actually go to a physical space. And it's something that, obviously, during this quarantine hasn't been happening. But it just makes me think a lot in general, about how everything is so concentrated on the screen that I feel like a certain type of intensity that's so important is gone. Do you yes. feel that way as well?
2: I think so, but then there's some there's some um, some of that that happens just by virtue of getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those days, we were young and inquisitive, to say the least, and. Like I said, the scene wasn't that small. It pretty much existed below 14th Street, maybe 23rd, you know, on, on a good day. Mm. Um, the the physical spaces, the clubs, um, as Edit Dayak once said, there was culture in the clubs. And there was. Um, it's where everybody met. There was a kind of leveling of our playing field. And it was an incredible time of poets and writers and artists and musicians and everybody all exchanging ideas and I love that line by John Lurie in um, Céline Danier's movie um, Blank City, where he says something like, "Um, anyone who was doing what they knew how to do was very suspect. (laughs)
0: <laughs> period. You know. That gives me hope. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's true, everybody, you know, I, I suddenly dropped everything and was playing with a band and and musicians were making films and filmmakers were making paintings and everybody was just,
0: you know, just kind of stirring it all up. And it's funny that you bring up John Lurie because yeah. uh, for, for one, I noticed that he has a, a show coming out on HBO about his painting... Yeah, which I thought was interesting. But it's weird in that same same day that I saw that, somebody asked him about uh, fishing with John. Yes. And I asked who was the cameraman on that. And you were one of the people that filmed that show, right? Yeah,
2: I, I, I filmed, oh, see, there are what, five or six shows I must have done for them. And I did the pilots as well. Okay. We did the, we did the pilot fishing for Shark off Montauk with uh, Willem. William Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. And um, and his wife Liz was there too, and we all got very very sick. That I remember. That and the and the combination of of seasickness with you get kind of sick looking through a camera for a long time. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. It 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 does something to you. And um, I had to be positioned at times in the very top of it's one of those little fishing boats that just looks so top heavy. You don't know how it even stays afloat. So I was up there rocking, you know, you rock around three times as much. That was really hard, but I did. Um, yeah, I did the pilot with Willem, and then in the actual show, it was Jim that went um, shark fishing with John.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah,
2: Jim Jarmish. Right? Yes, so I did. Um, I did that one. I did those two. I did the one with Matt Dillon in um, Costa
0: Rica. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. What what was that experience like?
2: It was really fun. It was? Yeah, we didn't catch a single fish, but it didn't (laughs) matter. (laughs) That wasn't the point of the show, I don't think, although John was disappointed, I I could tell.
0: (laughs) It's funny that that show feels like, I I don't think it took off at the time, but it seems to be having somewhat of a a revival because it feels like a show you would see on YouTube. Yes. Yes,
2: it does. It's it's very um, tongue-in-cheek. You know, he got that guy who does all the Channel 13-type um, documentaries. He's the voiceover, and he got him to do the the voiceover on Fishing with John.
0: Life is beautiful.
2: <laughs> I think that's how it starts.
0: Are you still in, a, uh, in contact with John Lurie?
2: I'm not, which is very sad because... John and I were very best friends for a long time I would say and I think he would agree and as his life became more difficult he became more difficult mm. and it was just impossible I couldn't I couldn't deal anymore and we had a big fight we had a big f- the last direct fight was right after Celine Danier's Blank City came out and um he wasn't able to be there. I called him up afterwards, and I said, "John, you were really, you were great in in the film, you know." And he said, "What? You call me just to tell me that I was great in the movie?" So I was like, I was like yeah. <laughs> "Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't.
0: Yeah, yeah. I didn't
2: realize." But John has problems. He has. And if you're listening, John, you have problems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so fond of him. He's just about the funniest person I ever met. We spent a lot of time together. I, I, I went on tour with the Lounge Lizards once in, in Europe. I sort of joined up. I, I've been with him in lots of different places, and uh, I, I, it's very sad that he is unable to have friends, I would say. <laughs> it's, it's his great inability. And he's the one that suffers for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess we all choose how we get isolated. Yeah. What was touring in Europe like? Oh,
2: it was fun. I just, I I just remember John, you know, it was kind of infantile in a way, like standing in the tour bus with his finger pointing out of his zip and waving it at the crowds. (laughs) (laughs) It was so silly and childish, puerile, but but John was just funny. He, he. Um, I went on holiday once with him and Kazu, who um, then had her band, uh, Blonde Redhead, with Kazu and myself and Glenn O'Brien and John. Wow. Kazu had just started singing with oh. John's encouragement, and she would sing B- Billie Holiday songs okay. in her version with this Japanese a- accent and a very beautiful little tiny voice. <laughs> it was the sweetest thing you ever heard. Um, Kazu and John and myself and when we went out for dinner John would call and make a reservation and he'd, he'd taken to calling me congressman he has pet names for everybody my name was <laughs> oh my congressman, congressman. <laughs> I, he just calls me congressman and um, he would call and make a, a dinner reservation for um, congressman Nair's and a party of three we always got really good tables <laughs> <laughs>
0: You are very stately, so I guess maybe that makes sense. I can see that. I don't know about that. How did the European uh, audience react to this new form of music that was coming out of New York at that time?
2: Um, Well, there was a small but very
0: enthusiastic audience,
2: which is sometimes the best kind.
0: Definitely. (laughs) I I absolutely agree.
2: Yeah. John's music was fantastic, and he got a lot of... um, inattention at first because he had used the phrase fake jazz, mm-hmm. tongue in cheek, you know, just uh, as a, it was a phrase that popped out in, in an interview or something and they l- labeled him with it, fake jazz, and so all the jazz people hated it. And um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the music kind of it took off with the no wave thing when Brian Eno came to New York, and was suddenly everywhere at all times, soaking it up, and he put out that No Wave. No New York, it was called. No New York album. He
0: joined a band that you had started, right? Or that you were in?
2: I I played um, guitar in the Contortions, the first, the original lineup, as I like to say. The original, original Contortions. (laughs) I played guitar, yeah. And only because James asked me... One day, if I would play guitar in his band, and I said, "Sure, it was at a time when I was searching for something different and something i hadn 't done, but I never really felt comfortable on stage as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I was much more comfortable performing as somebody else <laughs> you know
0: I guess to take a step back it 's funny, I was reading this." Um I don't know what you would call it, like a, a foreword for Julian Schneibel's new, oh, new yeah, show?
2: Yeah, yeah, the um, text or something. Yeah, yeah,
0: and you had a line where you quote Artaud, and he said, gesture is itself an idea. I love that.
2: Gesture is itself an idea.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's really beautiful. beautiful. And I know you said it in relation to his work, but it also seemed very applicable to yours. Yes. So, as a child or as a young person, is there one gesture that you can isolate that started your aesthetic or that you fixated on that you were like i want to capture this
2: i think there were things that appeared in my very early life which then became more um isolated in my later work and and which uh, were more confirmed or something by the later work Uh, movement was always something that i Movement and gesture—not that I was really aware of being interested in movement and gesture—but if I look at my early work, there was a lot of that. Um, I was very lucky that I had very um, accepting parents. Uh, in some respects, <laughs> <laughs> it was by no means a breeze, but um, they weren't really sure what to do with me and. They encouraged my art making because it seemed to, um, it seemed to work and keep me out of trouble. But I must say they were long suffering. I would raid my stepfather's, you know, those little drawers you have with with, with all your precious little things that Mm. you don't know where to put, his pipes and stuff. I would raid those, take his pipes and he'd come home to find them like epoxied onto a, chessboard and spray painted or something. I I took all his home movies, beautiful 16-millimeter home movies, and put them on a piece of wood and hit them with a blowtorch and made Mm. this celluloid Jackson Pollock. I wish I still had that. That was beautiful. I I was always doing stuff like that.
0: (laughs) And was there something that maybe you can trace back to that was not art-related that helped you form your sensibilities?
2: Well, there were things that I did which wasn't strictly art related. I remember that I wanted to paint my bedroom and I got the go ahead for that. <laughs> and I painted all the white cabinets you know, there were like big closets and stuff and I painted them all with a green paint and then smushed them around with my hands to make this kind of uh, marks like when they put that white stuff on new uh, buildings, windows so that people don't Walk through them you know that kind of white stuff yeah, smushed yeah, yeah. around it kind of looked like that, which was certainly you know I wasn 't thinking of making a painting, but it, it would very obviously connect to the kind of things that I was making art with uh, later but it took a, you know it took a while for me to refine my painting to the thing which seemed most me, or most mine, or the thing that was most important to me. I remember walking around the Uffizi when I was 15. They, I was sort of in trouble, and they didn't know what to do, so they knew I wanted to be an artist. And so my mom had just come back for a tour of Florence, and they said, well, you want to be an artist? we will give you some money and let you go to Florence. And they took me there and just dropped me off, which was you know it's like the theory of learning how to swim by throwing them in the deep end and i floundered but i learned how to survive in you know in, uh, to some degree on my own uh, but i remember walking around the uffizi and there's a rembrandt self-portrait there where he's painted the whole um, lapel of his jacket or whatever it is that mm. the kind of collar thing with one brush stroke and I remember getting very excited about this and standing in front of the painting, you know gesticulating, look at that, and being asked to leave <laughs> by the by the guard. they didn't have to getting a little too close or something.
0: that's funny, that must have obviously carried over to your current aesthetic
2: i, I yeah d- definitely
0: but as a as a child, what took you outside of yourself? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview getting into heroin, which I think does that, and so does art, and so does music, but was there something in your childhood that did that for you as well?
2: I think I was always in my own world to some degree. I had been, I was kind of estranged. Well, my father had died when I was three or four, and that left a big emptiness in my life. This kind of void, which was filled by my stepfather, but there was still something missing, and still is, you know, to this day, in a way. When people tell me how like him I am, I'm mystified. Really, you know, what, right. what is it about me? <laughs> like, what part of me
0: is like him? Did you ever figure out which part they're talking about?
2: Um, I think it's largely a physical, a, a, a physical resemblance, mm. but I think also he was very. Um, gentle and respectful and so kind of erudite in a way he was a, he was a writer he wrote about architecture and maybe an effemin effeminacy mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if that's just something that I you know I you can't really tell. I have a few photographs to go on. It's not like these days when there are a million digital images. I, I have a few photographs. <clears throat> I've searched them all for clues over the years. Um, but that was, a, that was a great blow and I, I think kind of drove me inside myself a bit because there was no processing of it.
0: How old were you when it happened?
2: Four, I think. Oh, okay. Maybe three, somewhere around there. And, and then when I was seven, they sent me off to boarding school, which was just horrific, especially the schools they sent me to, which were Dickensian. I mean, really, really cold, unfriendly places where they would beat you at the drop of a hat. Mm. And, um, and it hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cruel.
0: So at what point did your aesthetic... Start to solidify where you were conscious of what you were doing.
2: When I was in school, in high school, people recognized my desire to make art, and I, I got some attention for it. And they were very supportive. And by the time I came to this country in 1974, I knew what I was doing. I was very... I thought I knew what I was doing, but it's the same thing at that age. Yeah. And I had read and absorbed all the um, American art magazines and all the just international art magazines, but there weren't many. You know, there was like Flash Art coming out of Italy, and and then um, the American magazines and Avalanche and art Forum. And I read those cover to cover and absorbed and regenerated on my own the things that interested me. And, and um, to some extent, English art of that time, too, and European art. But really, the thing that interested me most was the American art. And I did my own version of things that I picked up here and there, my influences, if I look at the things I was doing were pretty clear in, uh, in the, you know, where they came from. Yeah, so I had a, a, a good sense of what I was doing. I went to art school in London, but I left because I knew more about what I was interested in than any of the teachers there. And I was very um, strong-headed about it. I wasn't interested in being taught anything else. So I just left and I came to the, uh, New York and by chance, landed right in the middle of it. My, um, a friend of mine, who I'd been at school with in England, had rented a loft in, in Tribeca down in J, on J Street, which was kind of ground zero. Actually, we called it ground zero literally in those days mm-hmm. because the myth was that if the Russians bombed the US, that was where the first bomb would land. <laughs> and then it became strangely true many years later. Yeah. Except it wasn't the Russians. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but the, the, um, the, I mean, that was a, a, a wonderful kind of fortuitous circumstance. I just landed right in the middle of it. I didn't, I knew what I was interested in finding out about and who I was interested in being around but I didn't know that I was going to land so fair and squarely in the middle of it. Right, right. Um, and it seemed that like all the artists I was interested in were living around there in those days, and it was a very uh, empty, kind of open place, so you could pretty much do what you wanted in. But I learned very quickly in that, in, in that the first couple of years after arri- arriving here, I had really honed my, honed my interests into something that was pretty identifiably mine now. Like if I think of a film like Pendulum Mm -hmm. that I made in 19, I actually made it in 1975, but I've said 1976 on it because that's when I thought I made it. And I, you know, looking back and getting all those, I thought I'd lost all those films, but I found them in deep storage. But by the time I had figured figured that out, I was pretty, you know, as an artist, you kind of you spend your early life stripping away the influences until what you're left with is what you do, and I had pretty much reached that point by then, and then you elaborate on it. Although there were, you know, there was some there were some strange turnings I made along the way. But not for lack of being, being inquisitive about life and art making. I, I did some things that now, looking back on, seem they seem like I, I went off track, in a way. How so? Well, I think that the around the seventies, uh, late seventies, when painting was making a comeback and figuration was making a comeback. I started to paint figuratively. And, but still, even in, in that work, it was the, the gesture, it was the brushwork that was the most important, and soon I just stri- stripped everything away until I, what, I was, what I was left with was just that, which is why I make my own brushes now, and make the paintings in one movement of the brush, because I figured there's enough happening within that to keep me interested.
0: Yeah, and it reminds me of a quote I recently heard by of all people, Jeff Coons. But he said that art is the essence of your potential, and it seems like when you strip everything away, like you started to, you found your potential and yourself and your aesthetic within that. Yes,
2: and then uh, and then you, you've you know, and then there's all of a sudden something you figured out, and you're just doing it. Um. But when I started making the brushstroke paintings, I had put all my other interests aside because I was making films, I was playing music, I was doing performances, and I realized that I couldn't do everything um, and do it well. So I thought I should figure on, I should um, concentrate on one thing, and the painting seemed to be the thing that I kind of knew best, and that Pretty much r- remained like that, at least publicly. I was I was always making films and things, mm-hmm. but I was never showing them until, I think it was when I show when I made Street. I found a whole stash of my old films, that have been getting a lot of play, you know, um, and started to digitally remaster them and everything, and make them presentable. And the success of doing that, I, f- um, I felt c- kind of um, allowed me to pursue it more um, along with everything else. And, and that's how I ended up, you know, being able to make a film like Street. And that, in turn, liberated my painting practice. And I stretched a, it a little further afield, b- but still within the realms of my, you know, my kind of, my mindset. Um, Like those paintings made with a road painting machine. They're gestural in a way, but big lumbering gestures made with a road painting machine, except, you know, as, as opposed to a paintbrush.
0: What's interesting about that and how it ties into all of your work to me is that, I know you're not a street artist, you don't make public work or graffiti, but, you use the street as its medium. It's almost though you're trying to get at the essence of what happens on a street, whether it be the the actual sidewalk or the people on it or the shapes that are imbued in the street as you're passing through something. At what point did that kind of become clear to you that this was your, your resource for aesthetic replenishment?
2: I didn't really understand stand how, uh, how particular it was until people started pointing it out mm. when they wrote about me. Um, but, yeah, street was a, a, a very particular event. You know, it, it's very like the paintings, which are very often this kind of long... It's like a long tracking shot. My paintings are like tracking shots.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And um, there's kind of a beginning and a middle and an end to them. I never thought of myself as a narrative filmmaker. I tried with my film Rome 78, which I made in 1978, in full Roman costume on the streets of New right, York. Right, right, which even
0: then seemed to be, like, using the, um, the street yes. as your setting for this, like, play almost. It's
2: true I, like any any place with a classical looking column or something, you know, Grant's Tomb or a place <laughs> like that was, was definitely like ripe for the occasion
0: Do you see yourself as someone, someone that's trying to evoke the atmosphere of New York and maybe not in a literal way but in this more ethereal aspect
2: um, There are still many things about New York that, that I love. It's a very different city from the one that I landed in all those years ago,
0: but. It might be returning to that state. It might be, yeah.
2: (laughs) I'm not sure if I like it or not. (laughs) It's easy to romanticize those times, which were very hard, really. You know, nobody had any money, nobody had anything. But it did make for some good art making because people were less career conscious or something. It was, in a way, a purer kind of thing.
0: Having really just soaked in the atmosphere of your work, it makes me think of catching like a rogue radio signal. (laughs) You know, I I don't know if that makes sense, but um, just atmospherically, you know, when I look at these Huge gestural drawing or paintings that you have done in, in, in one stroke, it has this like almost a uh, radio wave feel to me. Uh, I'm curious like, is there like a specific atmosphere that you're trying to evoke when you look at a blank ca- canvas and you're like, this is, I have a specific tone in mind that's the Jamie Nair's tone that I yeah. want to hit, or is it more just haptic and getting your hands dirty?
2: I think it, it's something that arrives just by virtue of doing what you do. But I like that rogue radio signal thing cause, <laughs> because that is very descriptive of some part of it. The atmosphere in my paintings, it, they ride this kind of fine line between thought and and something else. The, they're, they're like uh, they have something of the flight, of thought, in them. They're very quick. They happen very quickly. The paintings are like photographs in some ways. Yeah. In that they're made in fractions of in seconds or fractions of a second. I always say that I'm re- referencing photography, but in its temporal aspect rather than its visual aspect, because um, that's the part that interests me. Um, but actually, they do look photographic too. In a way, people think they quite often that the, the they, or, you know, people have said to me, they, is, it, "Is it a digital thing?" This, there's, there's a there's a kind of modelling that I can get within the stroke, but it's the paint is so flat, right, the, right. The, the illusion, such as
0: it is. I suppose the illusion that they're wait. talking about is like a slow shutter speed. Because when I see it, it makes me think of the the breath between motion and stillness, which I guess is a photograph. Yeah,
2: that's really nice. Like a a photograph, as we know, is not a moment in time. It's a condensation of that.
0: And I'm curious to like tie this into our present moment because I think of you as someone that finds the poetry of motion, yet here we are in this time, we're speaking in December 2020, the year of the pandemic, And it's a time where it feels like motion, transition, and stillness feel interchangeable. Do you feel that way as well?
2: I I know what you mean. I've written in my notebook something like, uh, things in motion, motion in things. The body has fluid, the fluid has body. And that kind of sums up my... Um, feelings about motion and stillness
0: and what about how it relates to this time now because you've also have had a, a retrospective and they use that word motion um, in it yet it's just such such a strange time to be an artist that's associated with motion during a time of stillness
2: yes it is it's you know stasis is is everywhere we're stuck in our apartments and Uh, the schools are closed.
0: But there's a there's a transitional element to it as well. You know what I mean? It's not like we're just... For sure. We're uh, (laughs) being inoculated in our cocoons. Like, something is happening big, culturally. I don't know what that is. None of us do, or none of us can really say with any kind of authority, but...
2: Yeah, I wonder what's gonna happen when this all ends. I might be i'm I'm getting so comfortable in my apartment that i'm going to begin to be scared to leave or something but the you know the the, the motion in, in some respects the motion in my work is 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 an internal thing anyway, and the it's the same kind of um fluidity that that thinking itself is comprised of there's a sort of fluid motion there. And I think it's, um, well, the paintings are very close to dance, too. There's a lot of dance and music and rhythm, particularly rhythm, in what I do. And that, too, is something, well, you know, I have the studio. (laughs) I can come to the studio and do my dancing with the wrist and the paintbrush, uh, you know, to represent those things, and there's a what you were asking me earlier the 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 kind of ambiance the atmosphere of of what I do I'm just looking at these paintings and it's it's the atmosphere of things in play things in motion body movements move which uh, you know, tied directly into the movements of the mind. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I don't, I don't know how it p- relates in any particular way to these times that's any different from any other time.
0: What would you say that that continuum is, if there is one?
2: I did. I it's just my life. I sometimes think of my paintings being a one long line and each one picks up where the other one left off because the, the paintings are all made with one movement, not necessarily one, one actual brush stroke, but with one movement. Well, it is one brush stroke, it's one movement of the brush. Mm. The brush um, may leave the surface and then return but even then, that flying white, as the Chinese call it, is a charged space, and it's still one line. And you know, and in some ways, the paintings do connect one to the one to the other as I change and think differently, see the world differently. Not so differently these days. <laughs> I think I've, I've done most of that, but. But there's a, a, there's a continuum just within, within the work, a, a kind of obvious one to me. And then there's a continuum throughout the work between the films and the paintings, which are the two most important things that I do, I think.
0: And having had this retrospective, have you seen, started to see your work differently or thought of yourself differently? having this almost like third-person perspective in which you're able to look at everything?
2: It was, like, encouraging to walk around that retrospective and see everything and, and, and realize that it made sense. Because <laughs> <laughs> really people... It's a great
0: revelation, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to just that word. It made sense.
2: Yes. Because, I, you know, it's always made sense to me, but but without having ever seen so much of it all in one place. I had a kind of naive thought that a retrospective meant everything you've ever done. And of course, this is a a fraction of what I've done, but it's a good representative and um, well-curated fraction that, that shows the connections for people to see. And I was really, really encouraged that other people were able to see those connections and to tell me they saw them. And to tell me that it all made sense to them in a way that um, that I hoped they would.
0: What's, it must be fascinating to know that all these different times in your life harmonize into something clear and cohesive. Yeah. I think that's almost like I don't know the best sensation you can have yeah. feel at least for myself now dealing with this time of emotion and transition and stillness has kind of left me with without that feeling and I think that's for me has been like the most uh dizzying part of the atmosphere of anxiety is that I'm like does this make sense yes. I, do I make sense to myself do I mm-hmm. make sense to other people I, I think it must be very like edifying to to to, to, to know those notes are harmonizing into your current form.
2: I read a wonderful quote by Bertolt Breck not so long ago, too long ago for me to remember exactly, but it was something to the effect that is kind of posed as a question, will will there be art in times that are terrifying and and uncertain, and and he says, yes, there will be art. There will be terrifying, uncertain art. (laughs) And and that's what it is. Art is your, it's something that you do that ties into where you are and what's happening on one level. uh, On another level, it just kind of continues in spite of what's happening and oblivious to it. I like to think that it all makes sense somewhere sometimes a person's work will make no sense to people until years after they've finished making it and they're long gone and you you think about you know someone like uh, a painter like Vermeer who people didn't even know about they just forgot about him until many many years later and and now it's a, it's such a perfect little jewel of kind of condensation of work.
0: Yeah, and it's work that hasn't like the artist hasn't been affected by outside sources because they were Mm. never famous, so they never had the opportunity to sell out or get manipulated by the market or something. It's just this artifact or something.
2: Yeah, and I love that we don't know hardly anything about his life. Yeah, He's a very anonymous person and that's frustrating to to us in many ways, because you want to know more, but it's also very pleasing to know. I've always liked the idea of the anonymous artist because it, 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 um, it relieves the work of, uh, of the burden of its maker.
0: Do you ever feel anxiety that maybe your biography will get tied up in your work, or is that irrelevant to you?
2: Sometimes. And I can't say that it's irrelevant because I know, that, I know that it has meaning to other people, and it, you know, it has meaning to me too. I think it's a, I, I go back and forth on that question, but I'm not a heavily biographical artist. People have been asking me; they say you should write your autobiography, and I don't know. I I've tried, I, I've written, written down stories. Somehow my, it, it, it falls into stories for me.
0: Like, as it should.
2: Yeah, I guess. I'd never, Like I said, I'd never thought of myself as a narrative filmmaker. Um, and that narrative was not the glue that held a film like Rome 78 together. But right. then I look at a film like Street, and I realize that it's actually a collection of mini narratives each shot has a little narrative in it as it moves on a little path over a fragment of New York. And it was like, oh, fuck, I, I, I'm a narrative filmmaker after
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> was like, but I think like, narrative mm-hmm. is such, um, you know, it's so imbued with... Um, with culture and language. It's it's, it's not like a, yeah. a real thing. It's a way for people to make sense of their lives. It's yes. a way to make sense of a, a piece of art. It's almost, um, it's like the essay. It's like a form of writing that's in the midst of another form of writing. <laughs> yes. And I'm curious, like as far as like narratives and biography goes, you know, you are currently going through this very like another more personal transitional period, and hmm. I, when I think of it, and I don't know you well at all, but it seems like more of an alignment than anything else. Do you see it that way as well?
2: I think it's true. Yeah, um, I hope, <laughs> I hope it is. As I've made some terrible mistake, but, <laughs> I, but, <laughs> <laughs> like, whoops, can't undo that. I, I had, I mean, it's been a very um, eventful couple of years.
0: Tell me about it, how so? Well,
2: after a lifetime spent hiding from the world, hiding this very important part of me, and I think this um, essence of who I am, and that I've known about since I was very young, you know, maybe five years old, I first realized that I was different in some way. Um, And I realized almost at the same time that it was not an acceptable thing. And I did the best I, I could to kind of suppress it, there's no better word for it, I stuffed it. And it would, you know, nothing that, I think that it's impossible to stuff our essence forever. It just, it will out. And um, for me, it was like, you know, it was like holding onto a bar of soap or something. The tighter I squeezed, the more likely it was to pop out in some unexpected way. Um, and throughout my life, there have been, you know, people who've known that I was different in this way. And now the 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 Feminine in me is kind of in ascendance. That's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy about that. It's a very surprising, liberating, and...
0: But it must be revelatory to make art that helps you see you as you are, and then to act on that and actually make you... Make yourself into the person you you are. Yes. Like, does it feel I, relieving?
2: Yes, it does. And 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 um, if I was in any doubt about that, um, I, I only have to talk to my friends who've told me how much happier and more open and um, in touch I am uh, in this current manifestation of me. Than I was before. People, have, you know, would say there's something. It's like there's something deep hidden inside you. There's this kind of remove from the world that I think that was my atmosphere, my my own personal atmosphere. And for many years, was that there was just something missing. There was some distance between me and the world and and that was by you know of necessity. I, my friends, I could only really let my friends get so close because I kept them out too. I, I hid from everybody and you can tell that with your friends if there's something hidden or if they can't step over a certain line
0: Right, if you're inaccessible yeah. to the, your true essence.
2: It shows. It just shows. So, the, yeah, this has been very liberating. Not exactly everything I expected,
0: necessarily. What did you expect? <laughs> I
2: knew that was the next question. <laughs> well, <laughs> and my, yeah, you put it out yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, I did. I was, I was thinking, I don't know what I was expecting, really.
0: I mean, that's that sounds realistic to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I must have been expecting something. I think femininity is something, um, or being female is presenting as more female. It, it, you know, has, There are all kinds of things that I knew but hadn't experienced, and maybe a lot of things that it might be quite good if all men got to experience now and then, because, you know, we know that there are things we know about men, the way men and women behave. And um, and now there's something I know, like, from the inside.
0: Well, having also experienced or yeah, having experienced the female experience as a father, as a husband, I'm assuming that, has this moment given you clarity, or do you look at it differently? I keep using this word revelation, but I feel it, like there must been, be some sort of revelation to that.
2: It's been an enormous revelation. I think that it's, uh, it's always been there, for, like I said, for people to see in what I do. And the paintings are in some measure the perfect representation of my male and female parts
0: they're imbued with that crystallization, for sure. They, they have a kind of s-
2: strength. Um, not that that's necessarily male or female, but there, is a, there's a, there, are, there are elements that are more associated with, with female that are present. I'm, in some ways, more confused than ever about what female and male really mean. And, and I'm understanding the spectrum um, and realizing it, you know, that there's, there are really no outer limits to that, um, and that everything and everyone e- exists to some extent, you know, along that line somewhere. I'm, I'm finding my place, and that sh- it's still shifting too. Of course. Here and there, and, and back and forward again.
0: Is there one moment of transcendent beauty that you can point to during this process?
2: There are several. But to take the one that floated to the top of my consciousness when you asked mm-hmm. me that, there was a moment, just you know, a couple of months after I had begun this transition. And when I say transition, I'd 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 opened myself up to the world and said, you know, this is who I am, and and you know, taking the hormones and things. I, I remember looking into looking into the mirror, and just becoming very kind of attached to my own reflection, and looking and looking and looking longer than I would normally look at myself in the mirror, and then looking for quite a long time, right in the eyes. And I suddenly saw this reflection that was me, but it was separate from me. And it was of this beautiful woman, yeah. and she was saying, it's, you know, it's okay. Come on, you know, come on in. It's it's okay. It was that kind of feeling. And that was the definition of a transcendent moment for me. Yeah. It, It was extraordinary.
0: That's amazing. And I feel the dialogue around this in pop culture is a bit greater than it ever has been, at least in my lifetime. Yes. Have you learned anything from younger people talking about this? Or Meeting them or?
2: All the time. I'm lucky to be in touch with quite a number of young people. And I have to say, you know, it's, it's so great to experience the kind of acceptance that younger people have of who I am. From my children, my own, I have three daughters and a stepson. And they were all Hundred and one percent encouraging and accepting from the moment I, I first kind of made it official.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, one of my daughters was like, "Yeah, Papa, we you know we we always knew this would happen." Or you know, so happy that you're getting to be yourself. And um, there's a text that one of my daughters wrote me that would break your heart. It's so beautiful.
0: What was it? I mean, you don't have to recite it, but what was the message? It it? was quite a long
2: message, and it kind of said that. It was, um, I always knew this moment would come. Um, It's so great that you're getting to be your true self. I only ask that you're completely honest with yourself. and It was that kind of thing, and it ended up with something like, and when I'm in New York, let's go shopping together. Well, you have to let me choose your outfits, because <laughs> you, know, you, you need a bit of help there, <laughs> or some, something. But yeah, the, you know, the younger generation seem. It's funny because, in some ways, I feel that my generation was responsible for clearing the way, opening up the p- possibilities. For younger people to kind of step in and, and run with it, but i i was I was there and uh, but i wasn't able to take advantage of those things for myself in a way. it was like i I was part of a generation that helped clear the way as the preceding generation had done, and you know the way it goes but um, But it's only now that I'm able to be able to actually take some of this for myself. And I think it's incredible. I think the internet really exploded everything because people could suddenly be in touch with other people like themselves. I thought I was the only person in the world like this for years and that there was no name for who I was. And... um, And now it's so accepted out there in the world, not 100%, and there are still, you know, all kinds of terrible people who do terrible things. But um, the level of acceptance is something that I I wouldn't have been able to imagine um, when I was young. I thought that I was a freak, and and that I was... And it's strange, yeah, because my, I just thought that I was r- really, you know, unacceptable in some deep way, which, which um, created this level of shame in myself that was, you know, almost the end of it. I, I, I think my years of drug addiction and, you know, and other ways of trying to...
0: Suppress that.
2: Suppress it or destroy it. Um, I mean, that's what it was all about. It was really about suppressing and destroying my my true nature. And if I wasn't getting high and and getting fucked up, uh, then I was driving like unbelievably dangerously (laughs) or you know, taking chances. I was, as a youngster, I was always, they called me the accident-prone one in the family. <laughs> I was the accident-prone one, which meant that I didn't have a a sense of taking care of myself. I would do things, you know, I, I always had some limb in plaster when I was young. I was always breaking things and falling out of trees, and, you know, holding onto electrical cables, and doing the kinds of things that, you know, that other kids somehow had never happened to. Um, But I think that that was a unconscious self-destruction and a kind of slow suicide, really.
0: I'm happy to hear that this has all come together at this point in your life. I think throughout this conversation, I think the, the question of 2020 being this year of, interchangeable motion, stillness and transformation has been like exemplified by your life, your biography, your work, mm. it all coming together during this time. So as a, final, as a final question, you know, you're somebody that's been this, I would say you're a chronicler of New York, I believe I've yeah, heard I that. Sure. I've,
2: by heard, default, it's, a, yeah, it's by not default. something I set out to do.
0: Well, absolutely, <laughs> but I think it's because you're so in touch with the atmosphere of it, the essence of it, the tone of it, the rogue radio transmission that's out there that we were talking about. I love that. Now that in this year of so much transformation in the city, we've seen this incredibly visceral response happen in the middle of all this stillness that played out in the streets this summer. Do you think any of that is gonna creep into your work or is that anything that you've been, conscious of, and maybe conscious of incorporating into your artistic practice?
2: Yeah, um, I'm obviously, like, very supportive of of all the Black Lives Matter and protests that have been going on. I have friends that have been blooded in them. I I have a piece of work that I want to make, a kind of you know, I'm, I really shy away from making work that's overtly p- political. Uh, same. Although I've done it. You know, I did this film. Well, there's where...
0: a way to do it that's not uh, directly addressing the, the situation. I mean, if there's a codified message around something, why make art about it?
2: <laughs> yes. I uh, Exactly. I like to think, yeah, even the the film that I made, No Japs at My Funeral, which was about an, an um, Irish Republican Army bomber. Uh, it wasn't about it was of it was a, a long kind of extended interview with him, but it was more about it was more about a revelation of his personality than the politics of um, of the troubles in right. in England and Ireland. Um, <clears throat> I bought a. Um a whole set of those, you know, those little evidence things like when they when there's been a bit of shooting or something, uh-huh. they have those little yellow cones or um, like a thing with number on it mm-hmm. so and they put it where where the shell casings mm-hmm. are. I have a whole collection of those that I want to go out e- epoxy to the sidewalk somewhere.
0: okay and
2: maybe I'll get around to doing that a kind of monument to some anonymous shooting and see what one's mind makes of that on seeing it see there I've, I've done it now I don't have to make it I, just, <laughs> I, I have more things I want to do at this point in my life than I've ever had as as my faculties are on the wane <laughs> my desire is, is, is greater than ever and my ideas are more than ever I, 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 my creative imagination is so fertile right now. There are so many things I want to do. And like I said, you know, I just kind of stir the pot and then whichever one floats to the top next is the, the one I do. But do you I, want
0: to switch mediums or <clears throat> do you want to continue with painting?
2: Sometimes, like I, I never made a piece with police evidence markers before. <laughs> so that's a kind of switch of medium. I'm also making some sculptures which I'm really excited about.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um,
2: Really excited about, and yeah, so there's always some riff on on my radio signal that's percolating there in the background.
0: So it seems like 2020 has been a productive year for you, if not like directly producing work, producing ideas and inspiration.
2: I've made two films. There 's one where I covered the death of my longtime friend and art dealer, Paul Kasman. I just happened to be the one there when he was dying, and I stuck with it and made a film about it, which he wanted. Um, and I think that 's quite a beautiful film. You know I felt like the people 's representative or something. I, I was the one that happened to be there, so I made this film for everybody. It's not quite finished, but it will be. And, and then I made another film as soon as I came back. I was up there with him, and then stayed for a couple of months afterwards. I, I filmed his garden coming to life in the early spring, and that's part of the film as a kind of antidote to his, his dying. Um, and I came home and there was a building being, a, a building going up right outside my window and I'm on the 25th floor and I have, I have a lot of nice cameras um, and I've shot this very high-def um, film of, the, of this building being made. But it was so great because I had this bird, bird's eye view of it, <clears throat> right where, actually where Jeff Coombs' studio used to be. So I have that being torn down and then this new building going up. And it's beautiful to see these guys work, all color-coded and carpenters and electricians all working with each other and around each other and telling jokes. And um, not a film that I was expecting to make, but it just presented itself to me. Another New York moment.
0: Yeah, it seems like this one will be centered around the idea of rebirth.
2: Hmm. It certainly will.